Hello and welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Iceland Review. Today we'll be speaking with editor Eric Palmerenki on his article Give Icelandic a Chance, which is about a Icelandic language learning program uh, initiative spearheaded in the small town of Ísafjörður in the West Fjords. As ever more tourists stroll around downtown Reykjavik, a debate has intensified within Icelandic society about the changes they bring with them. Minister of Tourism, Trade and Culture, Lilja Duk Alfredsdottir, has been especially outspoken in her critique of the increasing visibility of English in public life. Much signage in Keplavik International Airport, Reykjavik shops, and even rural restaurants is not even in Icelandic and English, but increasingly just English. Many Icelanders who pride themselves on a linguistic and literary legacy that reaches far back into history are understandably upset. And tourists ought to be as well. After all, they travel to experience the specificity of a place, the collection of things that makes it here and not there. Language is, of course, a major part of this. While there is much to be said from a policy perspective regarding the accessibility of Icelandic language learning, some have already rolled up their sleeves and gotten to work. Not content to abandon the defense of this old and beautiful language to nationalist cranks, a small program in the Westfjords is trying to give Icelandic a chance. Growing up with a German father and Icelandic mother, I developed a fascination with languages and history from an early age. You can picture it easily enough. Tolkien and Beowulf were early touchstones, culminating in graduate work in medieval literature and historical linguistics. Icelandic is sometimes compared to Latin, a fellow Indo-European language, because of its retention of a highly developed declension system, in addition to several other conservative tendencies. Long after it ceased to be a vernacular language, Latin led an afterlife as a scholarly language, written and read, but not spoken outside the church. But unlike Latin, Icelandic survives, spoken daily by a nation of some 375,000. My Icelandic, however, has unfortunately developed into the scholarly kind, my studies leaving me more able to parse a manuscript than to chat over coffee. Languages need to be spoken to live. And when I recently had the opportunity to truly immerse myself in Icelandic, in no less a beautiful setting than the Westfjords, I knew I had to head west and dive in. Peter Weiss, or as he's sometimes known, Pietur Kvitti, has called the Westfjords home for many years, having directed the University Center of the Westfjords since its founding in 2005. We originally began the language program here in 2007, Peter tells me in his office, which overlooks the Isafjörður harbor. Originally, the program was intended for exchange students, mostly on Erasmus and Nord Plus grants. In the beginning, the goal was just to help students to be able to order a beer in town, Peter explains. Most of them wouldn't go on to stay in Iceland but it brings so much more to the experience to live like a local while they were here. The approach was more hands-on, with less emphasis on grammar. 
A typical homework assignment for an exchange student that wanted to join the university choir, for example, might simply have been to call the choir director and ask to join. Due to changes from Brussels, students across Europe no longer receive Erasmus grants to study in Isafirther. While enrollment has declined slightly, it's had the side effect that more and more students living in Iceland seem to be interested in coming to the Westfjords to learn the language. Peter firmly believes in simply getting students talking, even taking out classified ads in the local newspaper to remind locals to speak Icelandic with the students here. As he likes to say, quote, a language can survive some mistakes, but it dies in silence. A major part of this philosophy is getting the community involved through programs like Gavem Islandskusjens, Let's Give Icelandic a Chance, a series of events including lectures, concerts, art exhibits, and speed dating meant to bridge the gap between the classroom and the world outside. Spearheaded by Isafirther resident and Icelandic teacher Oliver Guðstein Kristjánsson, Gavem Islandskusjens is breathing new life into Isafirther. In response to the cruise ships, which often flood the small community with more passengers than residents, Olavur, who goes by Oli, began a poster campaign in 2021. Shopkeepers could place a poster in their window to identify as Icelandic-friendly, somewhere locals could go and still feel at home. By 2022, the poster campaign had turned into a lecture and event series known as Icelandic Friendly Society. We are all teachers. This year, the program has grown and changed yet again into its current form, and although the University Center of the Westfjords has always taught Icelandic with these principles in mind, the degree of community involvement that accompanies the new initiative is a game-changer. What we really want to do here, Peter tells me, is to work against this reflex to always start a conversation in English. We want the entire community to also act as teachers. The easiest thing for anyone is, of course, to just stay in their mother language. What's second hardest is to just stay in their second language, at work, for example. But we're asking the hardest from people to navigate a way between Icelandic and their native language, to stay in Icelandic for as long as they can, to ask questions, to ask people to repeat, and so on. The Westfjords also represent a good learning environment, far away from the English signs and menus of downtown Reykjavik. In a Reykjavik filled with brunch and happy hours, where stores are increasingly open or closed, rural Iceland may become not just a tour destination, but also a language learning destination. I think it's a very positive development, Peter tells me. The population in the Westfjords has decreased significantly since the Second World War, by around 30%. So whenever something new starts, there's excitement in the air. Life is coming back to the Westfjords. Of course, it isn't just Icelandic that's also taught at the University Center of the Westfjords. There are also international MA programs and marine management and rural development on offer. Obviously, we're happy to see the region beginning to grow again, and having these other programs is an important part of that, Peter continues. But we also think that the Icelandic courses here and Gavim Islingsusjens are just as important in building up the image of the Westfjords. <laughs>
I think that people are often surprised by how much the Westfords have to offer. Maybe that's why we see more and more creative people moving here. I'm retired, but I still think it's good to give something of my time to people, Inga Danielsdottir tells me. And coming to these events is fun, too. The event that we attend is a presentation on contemporary immigrant literature in Iceland. Ergur Ur Norsdal, internationally recognized author and native son of Isafurther, is also in attendance. Inga enjoys popping into some of the events hosted by Gavim Islandskusjens, especially Icelandic speed dating, in which locals and language learners convene at the local brewery to meet, greet, and practice Icelandic. Past events have proved popular enough that there were too many locals per language learner, locals having to wait their turn to chat. Admittedly, the event may be popular among locals for the possibility of getting a beer on the house. I used to work in the music school here in Isafirther, Inga continues. But most musicians in Iceland move to Reykjavik. She mentions a notable exception, the internationally acclaimed Mugison, who is based here in Isafirther. So often we had to hire music teachers from abroad, Inga explains. If you're teaching small children, then of course you should learn some Icelandic. Not all teachers will learn immediately, but even phrases like, well done, first finger, and practice at home make a difference. Rome wasn't built in a day, but you have to start somewhere. Inga admits that the creep of English into everyday life can be frustrating. She notes that when she recently traveled near Husavik, a destination popular with tourists for its prime whale watching, she was hard-pressed to find a restaurant with an Icelandic menu. She was also in the market for a new front door recently. I went to a couple different stores for an estimate. Only one of them sent it to me in Icelandic. It's one thing to use loan words for some technology, but we have perfectly good words for things like price, delivery, installation, and so on. I just don't understand it sometimes. Although the events have proven a success, Inga thinks that the way forward is through less formal relationships. People can meet for coffee, for instance, Inga tells me. I have a friend in the Westman Islands who helps children learn Icelandic. She's a reading grandmother who helps a child that doesn't have native Icelandic parents. Inga has been impressed with the success of Gavim Islandskusjens and thinks that Icelandic learners should, quote, get themselves a nice shirt from Oli. The shirts and matching buttons state simply, I want to speak Icelandic. Of course, the matter isn't as simple as immigrants and language learners practicing more. Inga also has some advice for her fellow Icelanders. Always start a conversation in Icelandic. Have a little patience and talk clearly. And it's fine if people switch to English sometimes. Let them switch back to Icelandic when they want. It doesn't need to be either or. Helen Kova is a Venezuelan writer who moved to Iceland in 2015. She now lives in Flachteri, a small village in the Westfjords, and she's come to Isafjörður to give a talk on how the personal experience of immigrants is affecting modern Icelandic. When Helen first moved to Iceland, she was interested in entering a book in the annual Icelandic Literary Prize. But when I found out they don't accept works in translation, she tells me, I thought, okay, if you want a book in Icelandic, I'll give you one. Since those days, 
Helen already has two original books in Icelandic under her belt. Snulli likes being alone, and Snulli learns to say no. In addition to a translated collection of short stories entitled Auto Sarcophagy, To Eat Oneself. You wouldn't guess it from speaking to Helen in her adopted language, but she also had her own struggles in learning Icelandic. It can be very difficult for learners to find opportunities to speak and practice, she explains, especially in Reykjavik. Indeed, simply being able to speak Icelandic with her neighbors is one of the aspects of living in Flatdiri that she appreciates most. It's always the same people you see every day, in the pool, for example. It's much easier to have a rapport with people when they know you as someone who speaks Icelandic. Not even the most trenchant of prescriptivists would find much fault with Helen's Icelandic, but she also thinks it's for the best that the language has gotten some fresh perspectives lately. I think we're all carrying our own personal experiences, she elaborates, and it's these experiences that will change contemporary Icelandic. I speak Spanish, for example. How does that influence how I speak Icelandic? Some things I'm conscious of, but there are definitely times when I express myself differently from how a native Icelander might. But we're still speaking the same language. Or when I'm writing, I'm definitely thinking about how I might say this or that in Spanish. I don't write in pure or perfect Icelandic. If something simply comes to me in Spanish, I just go with that, and I return to it later. Helen also happens to be something of a tabletop game fanatic, with over 400 board and card games crammed into the shelves of her Westfjords home. I worked on this game with my friend, Fan Sissoko, Helen tells me. She was learning Icelandic, and she experienced what so many of us have experienced. It can be very hard to practice speaking with others. She wanted to change this, and there weren't any native resources. So, as usual, it was up to the people who needed these resources to make them. Next year, Helen and Fan will be releasing Beya, a play on words for island and inflection, which I am tempted to render as destination declination. Play-tested with Icelandic language learners, Beya takes place in a dreamy land filled with coffee and sleeping babies and challenges players to tell stories and describe things in Icelandic, without the fear of making mistakes. Helen and Fan also plan on touring Iceland with the game upon its release next year. In addition to more resources like Beja, Helen also thinks that a shift in attitude is important, both for native Icelanders and language learners. Don't listen to anyone who tells you that Icelandic is a hard language, Helen cautions learners. I think so often we get caught up in this negativity and it becomes self-reinforcing. I think we all need to be less shy. It's okay to just ask people to speak Icelandic with you, she says. Regarding native Icelanders, Helen says it's important to allow learners to practice, but also to not push or judge when they can't. I'm so lucky to be able to speak this language, Helen says, but not every hour needs to be class time for learners either. You might need to explain something important in English sometimes, but you should still try as much as you can. I love Icelandic, but sometimes language is just a tool for expression, and it's the message that matters, not the packaging. The first winter I ever spent in Iceland was in a yurt near Thinkeri with my husband, Vida tells me. 
After meeting her husband while studying visual anthropology in Norway, she fell in love with Iceland as well, skipping Reykjavik and moving right to the Westfjords. When Vida first met her Icelandic in-laws, there was a little confusion about her name. Vaihta in Icelandic can mean damp, drizzle, or showers, and her mother-in-law kindly teased her about a name that she was sure to get her fill of in the Westfjords. Now, Vida has lived in Iceland for 10 years, working on a variety of creative projects, including the Isafjörður Museum of Everyday Life and Gavim Íslandsgusjens. When she was chosen in 2022 as Isafjörður's Fjallkona, the feminine personification of Iceland, chosen during National Day celebrations, she composed the following poem about her experience with the Icelandic language and landscape. Intermittent showers here and there. Expect cooler weather. Slight showers in the forecast. Cloudy across the country. Showers now and then. Showers. Vaita was my first Icelandic word, for good reason. Vaita is a name I carry with me from my homeland, Lithuania. Could I have asked for a sweeter name here in this land? I think it's a little bit sad that some people feel they have to come all the way to Isafjörður just to come together, to talk and learn Icelandic, Vaita tells me. But at the same time, I think it's exciting to have something like this happening outside the capital area. The Westfjords are a beautiful region of Iceland, and moving to a small community outside the capital region has much to recommend it for a language learner. There are, of course, still some difficulties. There were definitely some hard times, she continues. With my education and interests, it was hard to find the kind of work I like doing in the Westfjords. Everything is very practical out here, but as a visual anthropologist, I'm more likely to step back and ask questions like, what is this, and who are these people? After 10 years of living in the Westfjords, Vaida speaks excellent Icelandic, coming to teach guest lectures at the University Center of the Westfjords. But she's still learning, too. I think I still speak English too often, she admits. My husband and I met each other in English, studying abroad in Norway. It was an international program, so of course you use English to get around. But once we put someone in an English space in our minds, it can be very difficult to change. That's why I think speaking Icelandic is so important when you form a new relationship. We associate a person with a language, even if it's not their native language. You can have an Icelandic relationship with someone, even if neither of you speak Icelandic natively. This is why Vida thinks that, in addition to learning a language through living in a community, it's still important to take classes. We often have these bubbles in our daily lives. We settle into routines and habits. Learning in an environment like the one we have in the Westfords is so important because it allows you to switch over, to become a new person. Vida is herself still continuing to learn Icelandic and she's been enrolled in the Icelandic as a Second Language program at the University of Iceland since 2021. Despite all the work that learning Icelandic requires, Vida says it's still important to not let memorization of charts and paradigms get in the way of the joy of learning. Learning Icelandic is so creative and fun, she tells me. It's good to not dwell on the hard things.
As Helen Kova and I get up to say goodbye from our brief conversation, I cannot help but wonder at what just took place. That Helen, a Venezuelan writer, and I can talk about such things in a language that neither of us have as our mother tongue represents a minor miracle. One of the words that came up regularly in these conversations was modermal, or mother tongue. In English, mother tongue has a rather romantic resonance, but in Icelandic, it's simply the word for one's native language. I admit the word fills me with a certain sadness. Icelandic, after all, was in fact my mother's native language. Growing up in an international family, I was filled with a wonder and love for languages at a young age that I still carry with me today. Long before I learned what umlaut mutation was, I felt something natural about the way mamma bends to mummu, and how this might have to do with a deep history. Perfect Icelandic still eludes me. And when I think of this word, modermal, it's not simply a sadness for what I never had. It's a loss that runs deeper, more like of a parent or a beloved. That, perhaps, is why I came to Isafirder to deepen a connection with my mother's tongue. Though I missed the chance for a modermal, Icelandic might yet be my ummamal, my mother's mother tongue. Well, thank you for that, Eric. Thank you for listening. Uh, I wanted to begin by clarifying um, this program that you write about in your article, Give a Muslim's Cousins. Um, it, it, it originally evolved from the University Center of the West Fjords. Yeah, exactly. But then there was this Oliver guy who started a poster campaign. Was that a kind of revival of the program or just so we could uh, handle yeah, on the lineage? So, so just to kind of uh, distinguish these things. So there is the University Center of the West Fjords, which offers Icelandic classes. Um, and then there's Gavim Islandskusjens, which is a separate program, but it kind of... Um, you know, I mean, like I say, it tries to kind of bridge the gap between what's happening in the classroom and the community. And, you know, it tries to kind of both bring the community into the classroom and the classroom out into the community. So Gavim Islandskusjens is not, uh, you know, kind of officially hosted by the university, at least as far as I understand it. Uh, Oli, if you're listening, feel free to correct me. Um, but it, you know, it obviously it's working in cooperation with the university center there and, you know, is trying to um, utilize the small community that Isafirther is to like really kind of, um, yeah, turn Isafirther into really like a language learning community. And and how do you, I mean, having spent some time there and involving yourself in this initiative, how do you think things are going? You know, especially this summer, I just felt like it was every day, every week that I was just seeing like more and more headlines about, yeah, you know, I mean, just the increasing visibility of English, whether it's just in downtown Reykjavik, restaurants, et cetera, the tourism industry. And, you know, I mean, like maybe this is also a time to just uh, – briefly acknowledge uh i mean i don't want to call an irony here i mean like obviously we're speaking english right now and i think that's important to kind of speak about these things for a wider audience and you know i think that there's obviously a place for english and icelandic to coexist 
in a way that's productive. But yeah, you know, I mean, I certainly am also frustrated sometimes with how English and Icelandic live together right now in Iceland. You know, I think that it's very strange sometimes that, you know, I mean, like obviously uh, in our work, uh, I read and write a lot of English all day. And it's very kind of easy to kind of have an English language bubble uh, that you carry around with you. You know, nevertheless, like I personally do try to use Icelandic whenever I'm in public. Uh, you know, I mean, just little interactions uh, are important, right? You know, I mean, like you're at a restaurant, you're ordering something, you know, like if we're going to keep this community going, like we all need to kind of pitch in to some extent. And, you know, that's not to blame individual people uh, who might not speak perfect Icelandic, and I certainly don't. Um, but, you know, like we all need to kind of be helping each other to keep this thing going. And so, you know, just this summer, I felt like there was especially like a deluge of constant headlines about, yeah, uh, whether it's excessive English and Leugavigur. Um, you know, like it's also worth mentioning here that there are actually laws in Icelandic about advertising and language, um, things that are geared exclusively towards tourists are obviously fine to be in English, but advertisements that are more general and of more general interest are supposed to be in Icelandic. But increasingly you do just see, um, you know, whether it's ads for restaurants or just menus, etc. like, like English really taking over and, you know, like that's a problem. Uh, Icelandic is a beautiful language and you know I think that um, I think like the really important thing that gave me some conscience is doing is you know trying to fight against this while also not making it charged because I think that very often the conversation can turn into a less productive conversation that is more maybe nationalistic, anti-immigrant, it's more kind of protective and conservative than it is about like reaching out and kind of helping people. And so I think that that's one of the great things that's happening in Isafirther with regard to language is, you know, like the emphasis is on reaching out, talking with people, kind of building connections and relationships and not about kind of like shrinking the group of people that are included. It's about expanding the group of people that are included, which I think is a really important thing to emphasize. Yeah, it, it emphasizes community and it enlists everyone as the campaign states explicitly, we are all public teachers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you referenced your own personal experience and I wondered if we could get some backstory. Um, as you mentioned, your, your father is German and your yeah. mother is Icelandic. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood um, and your first experiences with Icelandic language? You know, I mean, I think especially the combination of German, Icelandic, and English is like a very evocative one because the, the like like the languages are obviously very deeply connected historically, and you know, like there are just all of these little things where just like being around these three languages as a kid, you know, like you hear something and it just kind of sets off this like deep connection in you and you just kind of start thinking about the words and where they come from. Um, you know, I mean, just like for instance, um, just something off the top of my head, you know, like it was always just kind of interesting to me how like in Icelandic we say like mich vantar, 
Uh, so like this word, vanta, you know, it has to do with lack, but also desire. And so, you know, I mean, like in English, we have the same kind of construction, like you can be left wanting for something, uh, but that's also a little bit distinct from its meaning in I want something. And so like, there's all of these like little, small, subtle things that like clearly come from the some that clearly come from the same place. And, you know, I mean, like, obviously as a kid, I didn't really have like the framework and understanding for like really articulating why that's interesting. But, you know, just things like that were always like kind of on my mind. And, you know, I mean, like also like in a less intellectual and just like more kind of, you know, just, just, just growing up, like obviously Tolkien and Lord of the Rings is really awesome. And, you know, uh, in all of those works, there's obviously like a fascination with language uh, because, you know, Tolkien is also like very obviously steeped in this world. Um, you know, so that was kind of like an early beginning point for me. Um, and, you know, I mean, also having uh, just traveled and lived and worked uh, in other countries, Germany, for instance, um, you know, I mean, I have kind of put in the work to learn other languages and kind of integrate into other communities as well. And it was always kind of frustrating to me um, how different it can be in Icelandic. I mean, like when I lived in Germany, um, you know, it was really actually quite simple. And obviously, you know, nothing's ever perfect. Like the immigrant experience has its own problems everywhere. Uh, but, you know, for the most part in Germany, uh, you speak German in public, people respond to you in German. It's never really an issue um, because society there is, you know, like dense and thick enough that it doesn't really get bothered as much by like the internationalism and the tourism and, you know, just, you know, increasingly just media being in English, et cetera. Like there's kind of like enough of like a built up base of German that, you know, it's, it's fine. Like you can just go to the bakery, you can do your order in German and maybe they hear an accent or something, but they don't just do this thing where they automatically switch. And, you know, I think that when you talk to a lot of language learners here in Iceland, like this experience is very universal that people are like often annoyed that they, you know, are kind of putting an effort out there uh, and then people hear an accent and then people kind of switch over. And, you know, I mean, like on the one hand, um, that impulse on the Icelanders behalf, like is mostly coming from a good place. You know, it's just like a lot of Icelanders will openly recognize like, yeah, it's kind of a difficult language. Um, and, you know, they <laughs> maybe take pity on language learners in some sense. And they're just like, okay, yeah, you know, like, like fine, like I'll make life easy for you. Um, but, you know, I mean, like there are people that want to learn. Um, you know, I think that like a kind of good uh, way of thinking about this is almost like parenting. Um, and, you know, like on the one hand, you don't want to be the incredibly strict parent who, you know, quite frankly, is just mean and authoritarian uh, and kind of like insists too much um, because then, you know, you kind of just shut people down. People kind of stop wanting to practice. But then on the other hand, if you're kind of the excessively permissive parent and everything's just always okay and, you know, you kind of never have, um, I don't know, like any expectation, then that doesn't really motivate people either. And, you know, it's like there needs to be some sort of happy medium where there is an expectation that we're using this language in public, but also it's okay and there isn't a lot of like 
I don't know, like charged, like negative emotions around it or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it, it would be useful in this context, just for the sake of kind of practical biography, uh, you were born in the States. Yes. And yep. you lived there. Yep. Um, prior to, I mean, you visited Iceland uh, during the summers, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like pretty much every year, like we would spend a while in Iceland, uh, like a couple months, maybe just like a month or so in the summer. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that there's a year that went by in my childhood, like when we weren't in Iceland at some point, uh, you know, just like a lot of family. Um, you know, I mean, of course, like also just like on a practical level, like one of the difficulties of like an international family is that if the parents don't share their native language, then there's going to be a lot of English at home. And I mean, like my German was much better than my Icelandic because I mean, obviously that's just something that you can learn more easily, whether in school or just other resources. Uh, obviously Icelandic, you have to kind of uh, go out of your way a little bit more and like really want to learn it uh, in a way that, you know, English, French, German, like whatever, uh, you can just kind of pick up a little, bit, a little bit more easily. Yeah, and it's interesting that you gesture towards those resources. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you think of language learning, for example, in my case, uh, the other day I thought, well, uh, I'd like to learn a new language. And um, the sort of easiest course or manner by which to do that is, of course, apps like Babel or, or you know, uh, Duolingo. Yeah. Um, and I was just curious, of course, these resources are not as readily available for Icelandic. Are there any sort of apps or digital resources that you know of that can help people to learn Icelandic? What's the yeah, state have, of those things? Like, like we actually have a pretty uh, good resource on IcelandReview.com, which I'll point people towards. Uh, we have an Ask Iceland Review uh, that uh, deals with some good Icelandic lang language resources. So there's a more exhaustive list there, but just off the top of my head, um, and you know, also for what it's worth, people are always welcome to let us know uh, what they find useful because this is something that's kind of changing daily, um, and there's always more and more resources. Um, so off the top of my head, there are some apps. Uh, I believe there's one called Memrise, which is more for vocab and stuff. Uh, like the caveat to some of these uh, vocab apps is that learning vocabulary in isolation isn't the most useful. Um, in general, like we remember things more easily when they're in context. Um, so the thing that I do, uh, which is more effort, but it's more effective is I, you know, just whenever I come across a word that I don't know, I write it down and then I add it to an app that I have uh, that's like a kind of vocabulary, um, like, like flashcard thing called Anki. Uh, and Anki is a little bit, uh, <clears throat> it's a little bit less user-friendly. It's like, like it's very simple um, because it's, you know, it's just like some old HTML code or whatever. Um, but it's, it's free to use. Uh, so that's something that I'd really recommend for people. Also the university of Iceland recently released a kind of like frequency vocab list that has the, like the top four or 5,000 words in Icelandic. Um, and you know, I mean, of course, uh, it's a little bit of digression, but I mean, obviously one of the problems with learning vocabulary in Icelandic is that unlike English, when you just learn that, you know, uh, dog means dog, you obviously have to learn some other grammatical information, such as its gender, its paradigm. So like the way that it changes in different cases, etc. you have to learn, uh, you know, like how the definite article works when it's affixed to the word, etc. So vocab is always a little bit of a struggle in Icelandic because, you know, it's, it's not that 
dog is dog, but it's uh, 16 forms of dog plus the article. Um, anyway, uh, other useful apps and resources. Um, there is, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, like the problem is, is, is that there's actually not that much, but I mean, just again, uh, the University of Iceland also has this online Icelandic program. Uh, some people that I know have found it useful, some people less so. It is a little bit dated, um, but it does have, you know, some kind of like videos, some audio questions and answers and some vocab and stuff like that. Some people have found that useful, some people less so. Uh, there are also these uh, pretty popular books for language learners uh, written by, uh, I believe her name is Caritas, um, that have been quite popular recently. Uh, I can double check the name uh, and add it to the show notes, uh, but the books are called Dagatal and then also Aurstidir. And so, you know, I mean, one of the problems for language learners is of course just finding adequate resources, you know, I mean, it might be hard for some people to just immediately uh, pick up a book and just get going. Uh, but some people that I know that are still learning the language uh, have found these to be quite useful. And, you know, like, like it's written for adults. It's not uh, just kind of like children's stories or something like that, but it's still kind of written with language learners in mind. And so, you know, it's kind of created from like a A1 to like a kind of C1 kind of scale. Um, and yeah, you know, so like there are some resources, but there could also be more, um, you know, I mean, also in some sense, my situation is a little bit different from other people's uh, because I mean, my knowledge of Icelandic is actually, I mean, you know, like not to toot my own horn or whatever, but it's like relatively advanced. Like for me, the problem is just finding opportunities to actually speak it uh because you know i mean like for the most part like my work kind of makes me live in more of an english language environment but you know i mean just from my background and having studied historical linguistics and old norse and all of these things i mean like some of the things that people find difficult about icelandic aren't the things that i find difficult about icelandic for me the things that are difficult about Icelandic are more social. Uh, like there obviously is this grammatical aspect to Icelandic that makes it hard for some people. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to downplay that, but you know, it's like at the same time, I think that, you know, something that Helen Cove and I were talking about, for instance, is that this idea that Icelandic is so hard, that's impossible. That's one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. You know, it can become like a self-reinforcing myth. And, you know, it's like, yes, there is that aspect to the language, but I mean, you know, just arbitrarily off the top of my head. I mean, honestly, I think that like 70 or 80% of what makes Icelandic difficult is more social than it is like inherent to the language, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, like you mentioned in your article, one of the principles that people maybe should adopt, not to be too prescriptivist, and one that I have certainly adopted and I remember sort of consciously making this decision maybe four or five years ago when my wife and I were living in downtown Reykjavik and when you really sort of felt this shift um, between, I mean, uh, so, so, the, so, so the, just in, in terms of sheer numbers, I believe that the percentage of foreign nationals residing in Iceland 
at around maybe 2008 was maybe 8% yeah. compared to almost 18% today. So we've seen this, you know, pretty sizable shift in demographics recently. And you could obviously feel this shift, especially in downtown Reykjavik. And I remember, you know, there's something about human nature where, you know, you're, you're, you're making predictions about the people that you encounter. And um, obviously, usually very superficial um, observations, and then you're choosing to opt for one language over the other. But the most sort of expedient and useful principle is just to speak Icelandic to everyone that you meet, regardless of um, whatever, however they may strike you. And then having that person correct you or transition to another language based on their preference. But I think that's just uh, it's, it's useful, um, especially towards this end of giving people the opportunity of communicating in Icelandic and trying to be patient. Um, so I, Although, I, I mean, just to kind of pick a small bone there, you yeah. know, I mean, I guess, you know, like the whole point, though, is that it, it like this is the more difficult thing that we're kind of being asked to do, because I mean, in some sense, obviously, just using English all the time is more expedient. I mean, you know, like when, like when you're out in public specifically, like when you don't know exactly who you're talking to, like you don't know where they're from, like, you know, I mean, that is kind of the problem right now is that in some sense it is easier for people to just speak English, whether it is people who have just lived here for a year or two, people that are just, you know, like working for a summer, people that are in school here and also native Icelanders. And like it is like like the point is that it is like the harder road that we're kind of being asked to take. And, you know, like we are in Iceland and Icelandic is the public language of this country. And, you know, I mean, like, obviously there is a time and place for English language media, of course. I mean, I think it's important to let the world know what's going on here in Iceland, you know, and yet uh, in public life, it is important that Iceland remain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and obviously, I mean, expedient in the sense of accomplishing the goal of sure. preserving yeah. Icelandic. Um, and I think we should also, um, it's, it's worthwhile to note that our colleague Yelena also wrote a rather excellent article uh, not too long ago about, you know, the, the problem with sort of uh, teaching Icelandic as a second language and how that somehow falls in between ministries there's not enough funding, how there are a lot of people who, and I mean, enrollment in these classes has skyrocketed over the recent years. So obviously, I mean, this is, as you mentioned, a, a policy problem as well, but there's a lot that can be accomplished through community means. Yeah, I mean, in case it's not obvious, I mean, this piece was very much kind of a response to Yelena's piece from last year. Um, you know, I mean, I kind of also just wanted to show at a practical level, like what's being done about this. The policy discussion is a whole other beast entirely. I mean, obviously, like, we don't really have time to get into that right now. But, you know, I mean, just off the top of my head, it is unfortunate how, um, you know, for a lot of people, the best way to learn Icelandic is through classes. A lot of these classes are offered by private companies. Uh, most labor unions do give a rebate uh, for this kind of thing. But, um, you know, that rebate is maybe good for 
three classes or so in a year, uh, which really isn't that much. Uh, like, all, like also often, um, you know, something that I hear a lot from people that are learning Icelandic that I know personally um, is that there's really nowhere to go after a very basic intermediate stage is reached. I think that for a lot of people, you know, like they can maybe learn the basics up to like a A2, B1, B2 level, but then kind of like making this leap into living and breathing the language, it's very difficult. And there aren't really very many resources or classes for like bridging this gap between, you know, like you are no longer a tourist, you do actually have an intermediate control of the language, but then actually kind of being able to use it for daily life. Um, I think that that's like a really big frustration for a lot of people. And, you know, I mean, just off the top of my head, I mean, also um, like when I lived in Denmark, for instance, um, like something that the municipalities offered there is, and you know, I mean, of course this is just a funding problem, right? It's like, you just need money to make the programs good. But, you know, I mean, in, in Denmark where I lived, uh, you could enroll in language classes that were offered by the municipality and the initial money that you put down for the enrollment, uh, as long as you passed the class uh, and, you know, just kind of showed up basically, um, that money would be rolled over uh, into the next class. So, you know, basically for the price of admission of one class, you could theoretically take three, four years of Danish classes for, you know, the equivalent of, you know, maybe two or 300 euro or something like that. Um, and, you know, that obviously takes a collective will to say like, let's make this happen. Let's make this easy for people. Uh, that takes putting money towards it. If you think that it's important, you know, I mean, also just off the top of my head, um, an issue that's been pretty big, uh, recently, especially last year during some of the contract negotiations, uh, is like whether labor unions should have, um, you know, like kind of, like a special bargaining chip essentially for Icelandic language lessons for some of their workers. And obviously this is going to be a bigger deal for different unions. Uh, Epling for instance, uh, you know, is more heavily weighted towards foreign workers. Um, so, you know, like obviously this isn't going to be relevant for every labor union. Uh, you know, some labor unions are going to mostly be comprised of native workers. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, obviously just the straight wage increases are going to be good for everyone, but, you know, that is going to mostly favor native workers. And there is something to be said for in the long run in terms of social and cultural capital, integrating in society is just as important for a foreign worker as, you know, just 10, 20,000 more krona um, in their paycheck. Um, and, you know, it's just like at a certain point, like we do kind of need to put a price on that and kind of say, like, how much are we willing to put towards that and how important do we think that is? Um, but yeah, so that's not something we can really solve right now. So we kind of just have to bracket that. But, you know, like like what I hoped to kind of accomplish uh, with this article is just kind of, you know, briefly show something that's being done about this and just some of the people who are working towards that. And, you know, I have to say, uh, just everybody that I met in Issa further was just lovely. Uh, I think that I, you know, uh, made a lot of good friends uh, and I hope that's reciprocated. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was just like a really lovely atmosphere there. Um, and, you know, I think it's really like a great model of like what should 
be happening more. Well, excellent. Thank you very, very much for the conversation, Eric. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.